Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 15. Uh, this, I guess this fall, we've been working our way through a sermon series on uh, encounters with Jesus. And I am pulling up my notes. And um, one of the things we've noticed is that Jesus has these encounters with all kinds of different types of people. And this morning, he has an encounter with uh, these um, tax collectors and sinners who are gathering around and who are wanting to get to know him. And there are these Pharisees and scribes who have questions about Jesus's lack of separation from these unclean people. And uh, so Jesus does what he is so uh, prone to do, and he tells them a story. And that's what I want us to see together. But as we kind of set the table for our time together this morning, I want to ask you a question. The first thing I want to say is that whenever these stories are told, one of the questions that we're always supposed to ask of ourselves is, who are we in the story? And so as I read through it, I want you to consider uh, where you fit, which character or characters represent you. Uh, But the other thing that I want to ask you is, have you ever thought about what it is that makes God happy? What makes God happy? What, what makes God laugh? Do you ever think about God laughing? Could you ever think or imagine God having this deep belly laugh? What is it that has to happen in order to make heaven break out in this incredible party? What would cause heaven to be this party atmosphere? And that's what I want us to consider together uh, as we uh, look at God's Word this morning. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do ask that the meditations of my mouth, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. A little over a week ago, I was getting ready to uh, travel to Charleston, South Carolina, and so I was kind of running errands, and one of the errands I ran uh, involved me uh, checking out at a store. I don't remember where I was, but I reached into my wallet and I pulled it out. And uh, when I went to grab my credit card to pay, I noticed that my card wasn't there. And so I thought, well, the, the uh, American Airlines MasterCard is always the first card, but it wasn't there. I thought, well, perhaps I put it behind another card, and I couldn't find it. And so then 
I uh, was a little bit spastic, and I paid with another card, and I, I went home, and I dumped my entire wallet out, and it was a little bit of a mess because I got a lot of receipts and other kind of cards in there, and so I just I looked through them, and I, I couldn't find the card. And so then I went to my car, and I kind of turned it upside down, and I looked in all my clothes, and I looked everywhere I could look to try to find um, my credit card and I couldn't find my card. And so then I thought, well, you know, perhaps it's at the office. So I came over to the temple and I started rummaging around my desk. I don't know how it could have fallen out there because I hadn't had it there, but maybe it was there. Couldn't find it there. And then I did what I typically do and I called a lot of people. I called my daughter Wells, who's at Ole Miss, and I told her that um, I lost my credit card. And I told my dad and I told my mom and I told Kendall and I told Simeon. And I wanted everybody to pray about, uh, in a sense, this lost credit card because, you see, I have all these bills that are, like, on auto pay. And so then I went online, and I stopped the card, and um, I did what I'm really good at, and I started stressing about it. And um, because, you see, when you lose something, it, it unsettles you, doesn't it? We don't like losing things. But on a more serious note, in the last week, I've had conversations with three uh, families that are very dear to me. And these families have all lost something much more dear, in a sense, than a credit card. Now, it's not permanently lost, but each of them, and it happens to work this way, each of them uh, has a child who at one point um, was walking with Jesus, who at one point professed a love for him, who made a profession of faith before the church and who've been baptized but who today aren't following Jesus. And not only are they not following him, they want nothing to do with him. They don't want to know Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They don't want Jesus in their life. And as I kind of hear how uh, they describe this, and as I try to, I guess, uh, put myself in a bit in their shoes and think about the pain that they must feel over that, I know that it's overwhelming. You see, there's deep hurt and there's deep sadness and there's deep sorrow when someone uh, is lost in that way. You see, there's something about spiritual lostness that I would say is even greater than physical lostness. And of course, what they long for and what they hope for and what they pray for is that these children will be found. Um, I was fortunate because I uh, thought, well, you know, the last restaurant I was at was Chick-fil-A. And I called Chick-fil-A and asked them if they would go through and see if perhaps a credit card had been left behind. You know how they have that where you put your card in when you're paying. And then I thought, well, perhaps I'd walked away without my card and perhaps they have it. And um, so the uh, lady on the phone said, hang on just a minute. I'm going to open up the safe and I'm going to look and see if I can find your card. And so she went around and looked and I described it to her and she said, I'm sorry, uh, but your card's not here. I said, well, so then I made some more phone calls, and then I decided to get in the car and drive over to that Chick-fil-A because I was sure that it had to be there. Um, that's the only place I could think that it could possibly be. And so I went over, and they said, what would you like to order? And I said, I'm not ordering anything. I said, actually, I'm here because I was here yesterday, and I think you may have my credit card. And then the man uh, said, well, hang on a minute. And he went, and he opened the safe, and I saw him pull out like 14 credit cards, and he's <laughs> shuffling through them and he can't find mine. I'm like, I, I, let me tell you what it looks like again. You know, I'm sure it's in there. And then lo and behold, he found my card. 
And I was absolutely thrilled because I was flying on American Airlines the next day. Not that I actually needed it, but I, but I, um, had, I didn't want to stop it, and I didn't want my life to get turned over. And you know what? There was just great rejoicing. And so you guessed it. When I got in the car, I called a bunch of people, and I told them I found my credit card. You see, there's joy. There's this deep joy that, that accompanies uh, finding things that are lost. But there's a deeper joy that accompanies uh, finding people that are lost. You see, when people that are lost are found, there's joy that's uh, unexplainable. And together I want us to kind of look at that joy, but I want us to look at it this way, and there's three things I want us to consider this morning. And the first is the heart of heaven, and then I want us to look at the pursuit of heaven, and then lastly I want us to consider the joy of heaven. The heart of heaven, the pursuit of heaven, and the joy of heaven. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is trying to connect with the hearts of his audience. He has a mixed audience in front of him. We talked about it. If you look in verse 1, it says that there are these tax collectors and sinners. And so those would be the outsiders. Those are the unclean. Those are uh, the bad people, so to speak. And they're gathering around to hear Jesus. And then in verse 2, we find out that there are some other people with him, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're the good guys. They're the religious people. They're the folks that do what is right. You've got this, this very different audience. You've got this clashing of cultures that is surrounding Jesus. The outsiders and the insiders, the overtly sinful and the seemingly righteous. And what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying, he's seeking to connect with both groups. He's seeking to engage both of these groups with the good news of the gospel. Now, they're both engaging him, but they're actually engaging him for different reasons. So what does he do? He tells them two stories. And at the heart of these two stories is Jesus' desire that they and that we would see the heart of heaven. He wants us to see what makes God's heart beat for us. He wants us to see how huge and how wonderful and how amazing God's heart is for his creation particularly for his people, for sinners that are lost and detached from him. And so he tells us that heaven is heavy-hearted for lost people. And the way that he does that is he tells them this story. Look what he says in verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people that I'm about to tell you a story about. He says that in verse 4. Suppose one of you. And that's what he wants us to do too. Suppose one of you, I want you to imagine in the first story that you're the shepherd. And in the second story, he says, verse 8, or suppose a woman. I want you to imagine that you're a woman. In the first story, we read about a man, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. And so he leaves the 99 to go after the one. In the second story, we read about a woman who has 10 silver coins and she loses one. And she works really hard to find it. It's kind of interesting because it's a bit of hard work and Jesus is trying to connect the dots with his audience and yet it's going to require some effort on their part. It's going to require some effort on our part. It would be a little bit like what he's asking them to do. It would be a little bit like asking an oil and gas broker to imagine what it would be like uh, to serve lunch at an elementary school every day. Or imagine what it would be like to a man to be a woman um, in childbirth. You know, these are things that are a bit hard to relate. It's hard to put ourselves in those places, and yet Jesus is asking them to do just that. 
He's asking these people to feel what their hearts feel. Feel what the heart of the shepherd feels like when he loses his sheep. Feel what the heart of the woman feels like when she loses her coin. You see, what he's wanting us to see is that the heart of heaven is filled with love for the lost. It's a love that's heavy-hearted. It's a love that's weighed down. It's a love that is um, sad and concerned when sheep wander away, when people wander away from God. But it's also a heart that is defined by love and devotion, uh, by a deep affection, especially for what is lost, because what's lost is so valuable to heaven. You see, Jesus is simply just trying to build a bridge with his audience. And we get it, don't we? We get it. We get how sad we are when we lose something or someone that we love, and we We get how it is that we so long and we desperately lean towards and pray towards that one or that thing being found. And so the first thing we notice is the heart of heaven, that heaven loves lost people. But the second thing I want us to see is the pursuit of heaven, because if heaven loves lost people this much, then it's understandable, it's natural that the overflow of the heart would manifest itself in a pursuit. And so again, he seeks to connect with his audience, but he delves deeper, he dives deeper, and he's asking them to do harder work. He's saying, you know, once you understand the heart of heaven, then you have to understand how heaven responds to those that are lost. And so he tells a story. And the first story, honestly, doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, I don't know, maybe culturally, if we have done cultural study, uh, you know, I think there are folks that want to wrap it up in a nice, neat bow. I'm not sure that was the point, but look what it says in verse 4. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And then Jesus asked this question like everybody would say absolutely to it, when I'm not sure that's really what we would say. He says, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And that's when we're like, well, you know, he had friends and had other people that were working with him. And so the sheep, the other 99 were safe. And I don't know if that's really how we're supposed to rationalize because the story isn't told that way. It kind of leaves us wondering, man, you're going to leave all 99 to go after one? But Jesus is trying to show the heart of heaven here that this one sheep is invaluable. And so this shepherd goes and he seeks to find this sheep. And then we look at the second story of the woman. It says, look, verse 8, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Do you notice Jesus is trying to show and highlight all the effort that goes in to finding this coin? You see, when your heart is overwhelmed with love for someone that you loved, Uh, when your disposition toward them is one of deep and abiding affection. When they're lost, you can't help but pursue them. And what Jesus is showing them is just like the shepherd, and just like the shepherd pursues the sheep, and just like the woman searches for the coin, heaven pursues lost people. That nothing will stand in heaven's way from finding these lost men and women, these lost sons and daughters of the king. You see, Jesus himself is the hound of heaven, and that's what he's trying to describe before these people, that he has this deep heart for the lost. All right, so 
Let's think about this for a minute, because I know this is a very elementary story, so if you're not really following it, then it's okay, but it's probably just because you're not paying attention, because it's not really hard to follow. It's very simple, two very simple stories, okay? So let's think about it for a minute. Um, You know, how do we hear it? How do we connect the dots in the passage? But here's what I really want you to think about. How do you think the audience that Jesus was talking to connected the dots in the story? Because you'll remember that what brought about this story is verse 2. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are muttering. And what they're muttering is that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, they thought that if Jesus really was the person that he was supposed to be, if he was a prophet, if he was this holy man, uh, then he would be like them. That his life would be marked by this separation from things that are unclean. But instead, Jesus surrounds himself with unclean people. And so Jesus tells them a story. And so how do you think it is that they heard this story? I think that the Pharisees would have thought, okay, Probably what they really thought was that Jesus is about to tell us two stories in order to rationalize or in order to justify uh, the way that he lives his life. And so, you know, they probably were thinking that. But then he tells them the story, and perhaps they had a very kind of small murmured aha. They're like, okay, I get it now. So the tax collectors and the sinners, in the first story, they're the sheep that was lost, and you're, I guess, like the shepherd, and then... In the second story, they're the coin that was lost, and you're like the woman who was searching for the coin. Okay, I get it. Um, And so you're trying to tell us how God feels about lost people. You're trying to tell us about the heart of heaven and the pursuit of heaven. And Jesus, in a sense, is doing that. He's trying to say, I want you to see why it is that heaven has come down to earth. That This is the very reason for his incarnation, that he came to seek and save what is lost. But then what I would also suggest to you is that the way that they actually personalize the story, because remember what Jesus said in verse 4 and in verse 8, he says, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the main character in the story, is that I think what they would have said at this point is this. Okay, so like you came to save tax collectors and sinners. You came to seek after them because they're like the lost sheep. And you came to seek after them like the woman because they're the lost coin. And ultimately what they would have would have concluded is this, that we're not in the story. That this story's not about us. This is one of those stories. You know, sometimes you want to be in the story and sometimes you don't want to be in the story. Um, Like on Sunday morning, you typically don't want to be in the story, either because you're embarrassed or you don't know what the story's going to be about. That makes you nervous. But there are stories that we want to be in. There are stories we don't want to be in. And the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, excuse me, I, I think I may have misspoke. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have concluded that they were not in the story. And, of course, that's the big problem. But I want to suggest to you that it's not only them that has the big problem. I really want you to do your due diligence here for a minute, and I know it's hard to do. But I'm especially talking to people who are churchgoers and make that a habit in their life, those of us that are here at Mercy. I want to suggest that many of us, and I can find myself in this place as well, that though perhaps some of us feel bad and some of us don't, when we read this story, we also don't believe that we are in the story that this story is not about us. You see, this story is not about the us's. This story is about the them's. This story is about all those people out there. It's not about all the people in here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about those kinds of people out there. 
And of course, that's not really what the story is about. You see, they haven't connected the dots, and so often we don't connect the dots. And what Jesus is trying to help them to see is that there are two kinds of lostness. That he didn't just come for the thems out there, but he came for the us's in here, and that we all need to be found. But let's fast forward to the end of both of these stories. I want you to see a third thing, the joy of heaven. Look what it says uh, in verse 5. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And then Jesus says this, And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then we fast forward to the next story. When she finds the coin and she calls her friends and neighbors, verse 9, second part, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. And in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All right, the first thing is really normal. It's a natural overflow of our heart to find something that we've lost. I have a good friend who I had the privilege of doing the the wedding for, and not terribly long ago, they called me on the phone and they asked me, did I mail the uh, marriage license? And I said, you know, I mailed it, and I was zealous about putting it in just the right envelope and mailing it, priority mail, and I had a receipt um, from the post office as a record of having mailed it. And I mailed it downtown Dallas, and yet um, they couldn't find it. And they kept calling, and they could not find the marriage license. And so ultimately, my friend said, hey, I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm going to bring another marriage license over, and I just need you to sign it because, you see, um, they needed to go through all the name changes, and that marriage license is really important. And so um, he came over to the house and brought the new marriage license that he had paid another $100 for and said, hey, can you sign it and fill it out? And I said, sure. And I was trying to, like, what do I date it? And he said, well, um, well you're going to have to date it today. I was like, but you didn't get married today. He's like, yeah, but that's just, I mean, that's just how it works. It's just the law. It's like how the, how the city of Dallas works is, or the county, I guess. You've got to, like, date it today. And I'm just sitting there thinking, this just doesn't feel right. Like, for the rest of your life, you're going to have the wrong date on your marriage license. And I just cannot believe that they lost it. And I, and I, so I said, hang on just a minute. And I um, picked up the phone, and I called down there to the city, and I said, hey, I need to, you know, what's, I explained who I was. And, like, do you have it? And they'd called numerous times, and it wasn't on record. And the lady said, oh, it's recorded. I said, oh, great. So you did get it. And she said, yeah. And then I said, um, well, could you see if you have it? Like, did it get mailed out or where is it? And she said, hang on just for a minute. And she looked around and she said, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, the, uh, we did get it, but we don't have it and we don't know where it is. And then um, my friend went down there. I said, well, we'll just go down there. And, and she said, but we can give you a copy of it. We can't give you the original, but we can give you a copy of it. So he went down there. And guess what? They had it. <laughs> she just like a Chick-fil-A story all over again. They had it. Got it. It's no wonder, like, can you, I mean, that's a pretty important document. You can see why you would be overwhelmed with joy. That's the joy that the shepherd and that the woman have about their sheep and their coin. But then what Jesus does is he invites us to peer into heaven. And what we see when we look into heaven is that there is a party going on. Like, this is a real party 
And one of the things that's interesting, there's, there's two kinds of parties. The, the first kind of party, if you want to have a really good party, the first kind of party, in order to make it good, requires a lot of forethought. It requires a lot of planning. It requires you know, the right food, the right entertainment. It involves really doing pretty much everything right. If, those, if the part, those kinds of parties, if everything is not right, then the party won't be good. And we've all been to a lot of parties, right, that aren't good. And the second kind of party, though, is the party where you really don't have to do a lot of thinking about it. You don't really have to do a lot of planning about it. It doesn't really matter if your house is clean. It doesn't really matter how good the food tastes because there's something common. There's this central thing that everybody is rallying around. Like if you're a Washington Nationals fan this week, sorry for the Houston Astros, but if you're a Washington Nationals fan, then there's a party because your team won. That's all you need to have happen. And it's the same thing going on here that it wasn't so much all the planning and all the preparations, but there's this lost people that Jesus is saying who have been found and all of heaven rejoices. And I think that's kind of when we play our happy violin. You know, there's a sad violin. This is kind of like a dimmer happy violin. And we play it and we're like, I just love this story. It's a heartwarming story. But please go here. We're almost done. But please go here with me for a minute, okay? I want to suggest to you that we don't like that. We don't like that. You pretend that you like it, but you don't like it. Your entire life is about not that. Your entire life is about hanging out with the 99 people. Do you notice what it says? Look what it says in verse 7. It says that there's more more, uh, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent you got 99 people who are standing over there. There is no music. There is no party. There is nothing going on for them. There's this one sinner who repents. And it's not this cleaned up, you know, amazing person. It's not, you know, this, you know, incredible home makeover, or this beautiful makeover. No, this is the person who comes home beaten and battered. Jesus tells us about him in the next story, which we really can't dive into. But it's the story of the prodigal son who looked his dad in the eye and says, I want your things and I wish that you were dead. And his dad gives him all of his things, all the inheritance that's coming to him. And the son goes and squanders all those things in wild living. And then he ends up living in a pigsty, eating the pods of pigs. And he comes home with all the battle scars of all of his disobedience and bad decisions. And he comes home. And what does the father do? He throws a party for him. And we know how the righteous people feel about that. Because you remember the older brother didn't want to go into the party. Because the party wasn't for him. The party was for the sinful son who repented and came home. And you know why we don't like it? Because it's not the way it's supposed to be. Like, that is absolutely un-American. Like, because we train our children to make good decisions and to do the right things and to, to get the right grades and to have the right friends and to make the right choices and to live in the right neighborhoods and to surround themselves with the right people and to get the right jobs and all these other right things. Because it's all about being right. And we believe that if you're right, then there should be rejoicing for people who do what's right. But Jesus says there's rejoicing for people who repent. You see, what Jesus is wanting them to see, what he's wanting us to see is that there's actually two kinds of lostness. That we're all lost. That we all need to be found. You see, it's not just the outsiders, the people out them who need Jesus to find them, but it's the insiders, it's the people in here who need Jesus to find us. And so the first question is, are you aware of your lostness? 
Are you aware of how deeply and desperately you need Jesus to find you, that your only hope is found in Him? It's not in your rightness, but it's in His redemption. Because here's the beauty of it, and I hope that you really gravitate toward this, but He says it again in verse 10. He says, In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, I really think we're supposed to kind of imagine that a little bit. Like get caught up in that vision. Imagine the, the party that's going on when one person is aware of their lostness and when they turn around and they're found by the hound of heaven. That there's a party that breaks out. But I want to ask just a couple more questions and we're almost done. So here we go. If you are a Christian, if you are someone who professes to follow Jesus, then these questions are for you. The first is this. Do you have a heart for the lost? Do you love what God loves? Do you share his sadness for those who are lost? Do you share his hope that they would be found? Do you have a heart for the lost? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think if we all say yes to that, um, then we would definitely not be telling the truth. And I would say to you that if I said yes to that every day of my life, then I would not be telling the truth because I don't know that we actually do at times have a heart for the lost. But our good shepherd does. Heaven does. The second question is this. Do you, if you're a believer, if you're a professing Christian, do you pursue the lost? Do you go after them? And do you invite them in? Do you go where God goes? Do you do what God does. Do you live like He lives? And I would say, you know, for people like our persuasion of Christianity, this perhaps is one of the most difficult things because we have somehow been um, programmed uh, to build our life in such a way that this is virtually impossible. Because we surround ourselves with a bunch of good people and we hang out with a bunch of nice, right people uh, we have some nice friends that we like to spend most of our time with them. And we really don't have space, we don't have bandwidth to pursue the lost. The other problem is, is that when we actually meet those people, we don't know how to talk to them. But I also want you to notice what's really interesting, and this should really grab your attention, because one of the assumptions that we have about lost people is that they don't want to talk about Jesus that they don't want to talk about the life that can be found in Him. But notice what happened in verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. He said they actually do want to hear what He has to say because they're looking for the same thing that you and I are looking for. So do you pursue the lost? And then, of course, the last question is, do you rejoice when the lost are found? Like, how much joy do we get? How, how much joy does it bring us when people who are lost are found by Jesus. There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more wonderful than that. And we should know it hopefully ourselves in the most personal sense because when you get an idea, a real idea of who you are in relationship to God, of how deeply and desperately you need Him in your life, and when He finds you, and when He doesn't just say, I'll tolerate you, but when He kills the fatted calf and He throws a party over you and the whole band rings out in heaven and the angels begin to dance... There's joy upon joy. Do we rejoice when that happens in the lives of other people? My friends, there's two kinds of joy that are offered in this passage. There's joy in being found, and there's joy when the lost are found, and both are to be celebrated.